So, yeah, 2, 2 Samuel 13, verse 1 to 22. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became frustrated to the point of illness on account of his sister Tamar. She, she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now, Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, son of Shimea, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, Why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I'd like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my side so that I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I'd like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so that I may eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace, go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her, went to the house of her, her brother Amnon who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said, so everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom so that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. Don't, my brother she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You'd be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then... Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you've already done to me. But he refused to listen to her, called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of here and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing a richly ornamented robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornamented robe she was wearing. She put her hand on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet now, my sister. He's your brother. Don't, don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. 
When King David heard all this, he was furious. Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Well, thank you very much, Paul. Why don't we uh, ask God for his help again? Let's, uh, let's pray for God's help as we turn back to this passage. Father, we are so thankful that you have given us these words, the words of Scripture, to help us, to warn us, to help us to see Jesus. We pray for your help now, uh, that we would give them our attention, uh, so that we might see the light of the gospel uh, in the darkness of our world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know what you thought as uh, Paul uh, read that passage, but I think there's no doubt uh, that it is one of the most disturbing stories in the whole Bible. Uh, I can think of only one or two places in the Bible that come close to this for showing us the abuse of one human being against another in all its grim and ugly brutality. You've probably been relieved uh, to hear from Erin that our children's groups, who normally track along uh, with the adult talks, are giving this one a miss and learning from Psalm 51 instead. And you may have been wondering, why couldn't we do the same? After all, this one week, when we gather together as a church to hear from God's word, to be built up, to be encouraged in the Christian life, is a very precious time, isn't it? It's just one hour or two in the week. You may have been thinking, do we have to spend this time looking at a rape? And I know that for some in this room, who have suffered real abuse and assault, especially sexual abuse at the hands of others, or perhaps even perpetrated that abuse upon others, this is a very serious question. The subject matter of this passage will affect some of us very deeply indeed. In fact, I need to warn you that this passage is even more disturbing than it might at first appear. The narrator, who we've been getting used to over the weeks as a very careful craftsman has arranged this story very carefully around a series of interlocking scenes involving pairs of characters. And the whole story builds towards this central terrible crisis of the rape of Tamar in verse 14. And if you have an outline in front of you, you'll see that I've tried to show that structure on the outline. The way the story works is that he brings us inwards with Tamar into this terrible moment at the center, and then he brings us outwards with Tamar to show us the horror of it and all its consequences. But the narrator's agenda is not simply to show us the horror of the attack. Now, the really terrifying part of this story is that it's a story of like father, like son. So you remember where we're up to in the story? Chapters 11 and 12 have shown us David's adultery and murder. And now we are looking at the sons of David looking and learning to become like their father. And so 
while the rape of Tamar is at the center of the story, this is not a story about that sin alone, but it's a story of a bitter harvest that has been passed on from father to son and repeated and amplified from one generation to the next with no power to stop it. So if I can put it this way, this is not, as it may first appear, a story of what we might call toxic masculinity, although it is. This is a story of toxic humanity and the bitter fruit that is reaped from one generation to another. So we may ask, why not study a nicer, more uplifting part of the Bible? I don't know if you've ever wondered this. Why do we do this in this church? Why don't we just pick a theme or passage? Why don't we just decide this week we're going to study joy or hope or heaven or how to have a good marriage or perhaps spend some time analyzing the culture? Or why doesn't the preacher just pick one of his favorite passages rather than picking a book and then plowing on regardless, no matter what the passage throws up? Some people do that. I think that would be easier sometimes for both preacher and listener. Well, we don't do it here. Well, why don't we do it? Well, one reason to answer that question is to think about the nature of the Bible itself and what it is we are doing as we gather together to hear from God's Word each week. For example, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul, speaking of the time when Israel sinned through idolatry, sexual immorality, and grumbling, he said this, and these words are on the screen. He says, these things happened, these terrible things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages have come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Paul also says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, this, he says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, the Holy Spirit has given us these stories for our good, despite the fact they are painful to read. God has deliberately inspired these passages to warn us against the terrible consequences of sin and to train us for righteousness. And so we must listen and hear the warning. Hear the warning from God about the damage that sin can do. Parents, hear the warning from God about the powerful effects of our example on our children. But we need to go further than this. So I can hear some music. I feel it's distracting people. I'm just desperately hoping it's not coming from me. (laughs) Okay, thank you. Uh, We need to go further than this. The passage before us can only serve as a negative example, cannot only serve as a negative example or warning, because can I draw your attention to verse 13 and Tamar's haunting question where she says, where could I get rid of my disgrace? If this question goes unanswered, this would be a terrible passage to read. Imagine if there were no answer to that question, as if shame had the final word. 
as if human sin proved in the end to be too strong for God's promise to, to succeed, imagine if all our stories and all our lives ended in tears and tatters like Tamar's. But the good news is that question does in fact get an answer in the unfolding story of the Bible, the biggest story of which this is just a part. It's an answer that Tamar could not have imagined or hoped for. It's an answer her abuser never thought he would, he would see happen. And the answer to the question comes eventually in the cross of Christ. Because the claim that Jesus makes is that these scriptures are ultimately about him. John 5.39, these are the scriptures that testify about me. Or as he explains to his disciples in Luke 24, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Or listen to this description of Christian Bible reading in 2 Peter 1, which you'll see at the bottom of your sheet and on the screen. He says, and we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you'll do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So as we study these difficult and disturbing passages this week and next week and the week after, we are being shown the darkness of our world and of our hearts in all their reality and horror, because after all, our world is dark and our hearts are dark. But as we are shown this darkness, we are being invited to see something all the more clearly, the beauty and brilliance and light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I've got three headings uh, with some of the movement of the story on the sheet in between. We're going to go from love to hate and then back to love. So love, first of all, in 1 to 14. Let's pick it up in verse 1. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. That first line introduces the three main players in the drama that follows, Amnon, Absalom, and Tamar. The only thing we're told there about Tamar is that she's beautiful, but notice what the narrator tells us about the two men. He draws attention to the fact, doesn't he, that they are both sons of David. We have Amnon, son of David, and Absalom, son of David. And so Tamar is Absalom's full brother by one of David's wives, and Amnon is her half-brother by another of David's wives. Well, into this already complex and dysfunctional family now comes a further dangerous complication in the form of Amnon's love for his half-sister. Well, love is what he thinks it is, but we quickly see something different to love is at work in Amnon's heart. Verse 2. Amnon became frustrated to the point of illness on account of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. It is clear now that what Amnon thinks of as love is actually sexual desire. The desire for a beautiful woman takes us back to King David. That was the impulse, you may remember, at the beginning of chapter 11, when he saw the beautiful Bathsheba bathing from his roof. As the narrative unfolds, we will see how unlike real love that sexual desire can be if it can develop unchecked. 
And so we're already seeing, aren't we, this theme of like father, like son. Chapter 11 begins with a beautiful woman and a response in the man. Chapter 13 begins with a beautiful woman and a response. But how will the man respond this time? Well, King David was all-powerful, and he had the means to act on his desire, as we saw. Amnon, although he is the king's son, does not have that kind of power, and so he cannot act on his desire so easily. Tamar, we are told, verse 2, is a virgin, which in this context means a young woman of marriageable age. And for various reasons, not least because of the law of Moses, which forbade sex between relations, and because they lived in different houses, this means, quoting the narrator's word in verse 2, it was impossible for Amnon to get her alone to do what he wished to do. And so what will Amnon do with this impossible desire? Well, he allows it to grow into a full-blown obsession. Now, that may have been the end of the story. But now we meet Amnon's clever friend and cousin, Jonadab, who we are told in verse 3 is very shrewd. Literally, he is a very wise man. Notice in verse 4, Jonadab does not think the king's son should have to suffer in this way. So he devises a cunning plan, which is really all about getting Tamar on her own with Amnon. He notices that Amnon already looks haggard. And so his suggestion is, why not play on that? You already look like you're on death's door. So play on that, go to bed. And this is the plan. Verse 5. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. The verb translated go to bed in verse 5 is that word to lie, which we've already seen in chapters 11 and 12. It's a sort of euphemism for sexual intercourse. And it's going to become a key word for what follows. Add to this the slightly odd suggestion that Amnon needs to watch his sister prepare his food and be fed from her hand like a kind of invalid in bed. We can see that Jonadab has set up a very strange but somehow sexually charged scene. Well, let's look at how the plan unfolds in 6 to 9. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I may eat it from her hand. Amnon's request is getting weird. The verb translated make and the noun translated special bread are quite hard to translate in English, but they both have the word heart at their root. I suppose we have the idea of a hearty food. When I was uh, sick growing up, I always used to have Heinz tomato soup. <clears throat> it was a kind of soup for sick people, something that is meant to make you feel better. Maybe that is the kind of thing that is meant here. Come and make some hearty food that is going to help me feel better. But it just happens that this heart word is a word used in the Song of Songs for sexual arousal. So there is simply... Uh, Obviously, more going on in Amnon's mind. Now, this makes David's involvement in the business all the more suspect. 
he behaves, doesn't he, like a weak father here. He comes to his son's bedside. He spoils him with every request. He puts his daughter at his beck and call. But he also unwittingly allows himself to be used as the go-between to set up a sexual liaison, something he himself has done back in chapter 11. So we read in verse 7, David sent word to Tamar at the palace, go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread and baked it in his sight. So far, we've only been told one thing about Tamar, that she is beautiful. We also know that she is a virgin and that she is unavailable for Amnon. Now, the picture the narrator subtly draws for us is of a godly, wise, sensible woman who is obedient to her father. And notice she's very kind to her brother and she is completely oblivious to his evil intentions. And therefore, Tamar will be taken surprised by two things that happen next. The first surprise is that when she feeds him the bread, which he has made such a big thing about making, verse 9, he refuses to eat. The second surprise is even more surprising. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said, so everyone left. And now we see that Jonadab's cunning plan has worked. You see, in this society, it is not very easy to get one-to-one with a member of the opposite sex, even your half-sister. And Amnon has used his father as a messenger, his sickness as a disguise, and his real intentions are now about to be revealed. The narrator has drawn us in with Tamar to what we know is going to be a trap. And the trap is now sprung in 10 to 14. This scene, which is charged with danger, now comes to a kind of a climax in 10 to 14. But nothing quite prepares us for how Amnon will throw off his pretense and make his intentions explicit. Verse 10, then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom so I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she'd prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. And 12 to 13, Tamar responds with an emphatic no. But I want you to see that Tamar's response is more than just a courageous refusal. It is actually full of deep biblical wisdom. And it serves both as a defense against Amnon's attack and an indictment against his sin. And so it prepares us to understand the tragedy that follows. Tamar says three things. She says something about Israel. She says something about Amnon. And she says something about herself. First look at verse 12 which is stated with a powerful piece of poetry. She says something about Israel. Don't, my brother, she said to him, don't force me, literally violate me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. There's some very important language used here to help us understand 
what is going on. Three times in one verse, she begs her brother not to carry out the plan. Do you see that? Don't, don't, don't. Each time the force becomes stronger. Don't because you are my brother. Don't because this is a violation of me. And don't do this wicked thing, literally this outrageous thing, this disgrace or abomination. I mentioned in the introduction that there are only other, a couple of other passages in the Old Testament that come close to this for ugliness and brutality. It's not often that the grub groups study a different passage. This is one of those times. And it just happens in those passages, we get the same phrase, this phrase translated here as wicked, which is really better translated outrage or abomination. We get it, for example, in Genesis 34, which is the rape of Jacob's daughter Dinah. We get it in Judges 19, which is a homosexual assault. We get it in Judges 20, which is a gang rape of an unnamed woman. And we get it in Jeremiah 29, which is about adultery with a neighbor's wife. And the point of each of those occasions is that this outrageous thing implicates the whole nation. This should not be done in Israel, she says. To have such a thing done in Israel is to reduce Israel to the paganism and depravity of the nations who do not know God. And that is an outrageous thing. And it's telling, isn't it, that Tamar's first concern is not with her own safety, but with the reputation of the nation and with the glory of God. Secondly, using the same word in verse 13 translated as wicked, she shows Amnon the consequences of this sin for himself. She says, you'll be like one of the outrageous fools of Israel. In other words, in degrading her, he'll degrade himself. He'll make himself worthy of God's wrath. Isn't that striking? She's concerned for Israel's reputation. She's even concerned for her attacker. And then thirdly, Right in the middle of this, she appeals to the devastating effect this would have on her. Verse 13, where could I get rid of my disgrace? I think that line is heartbreaking, isn't it? Let us be in no doubt that the guilt of this will fall on Amnon's head. What happens to Tamar is not her fault. She is not to blame. She did not ask for it. She did not provoke it. She did not deserve it. She couldn't have prevented it. She is the victim, not the perpetrator. There is no consent, as we would put it today. There is no willingness on her part. And yet that word disgrace must be given its full weight. Here is a woman about to be overpowered by a man against her will. And we're going to see that she's going to be left with a feeling of, of shame, of self-blame, of worthlessness, of humiliation, even of guilt. And I think all of that is caught up in that word disgrace. And so please feel the weight of Tamar's question here. Where can I get rid of my disgrace? This is more than just a question of where can I see justice done. This is deeper even before the thing has happened, she is seeing herself as 
broken in heart and body and mind and spirit. And she's asking him, where will I be able to go to put that right? Well, the question is left unanswered by this story. And in verse 13, she seems to try one desperate final argument. I think that's what that's about, mentioning the king and marriage. I think it's just a desperate attempt to buy some time. But none of this works. Amnon now proves himself to be an outrageous fool. And we come to the horrible center of the story, verse 14. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. The simplicity of verse 14 is shocking, isn't it? It's very simple. There's no more discussion. He refuses to listen to reason. He is stronger than her. And so he uses his strength to overpower her, to violate her will, to dominate her and to humiliate her in this act of violence. And it's on that pivot that the narrator now swings us into the second half in 15 to 22. The second half of the story is a mirror image of the first half. He's drawn us inside with Tamar, and he now thrusts us outside with Tamar. Innocence is turned to shame, beauty to ugliness, and what has been called love is turned to hate. Verse 15. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. It's strange, but it's somehow psychologically true to life. Having been obsessed with Tamar for so long, suddenly he is no longer interested. His love turns to hatred. The phrase, get up and get out, is the exact reversal of his earlier demand that she come and lie down with him. His desire has suddenly turned to revulsion, and he cannot bear the sight of her. What is going on here? Well, I think this reminds us of the powerfully deceptive nature of sexual sin. All the time, Amnon has been telling himself that he was in love with Tamar. That he believed that if he could satisfy his desire, it would bring some kind of fulfillment. That they would have some kind of relationship. And of course, that would have been the case if his sexual desire had been directed towards God's given purpose for it in marriage. But now he has spent his lust in her violation. And that so-called love has now been revealed to actually be nothing more than self-love and hatred for her. This was always about himself. And now he has got what he wanted. He can toss her out, useless, discarded, an object. Well, let's follow Tamar's departure outside in 17 to 19. What follows in these verses is just the beginning of the tragic outworking of this event. The full outworking is going to take the rest of 2 Samuel to tell. But here, the focus is on Tamar herself, and it's a picture of tragic reversal. Everything in the beginning of the story is now turned inside out and upside down. 
Notice firstly how keen Amnon is to be rid of her. He did everything in his power to entice her in. And now he does everything in his power to get her out. Verse 17, he called his personal servant and said, Get this woman out of here and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. I think we're bound to see here a sense of blame, aren't we? That he blames her for what happens. He throws her out. He bolts the door as if it was her who made inappropriate advances on him, as if he needs protecting from her. But it's at this moment that something more important is given to us. We're given at that moment the rare detail of what she is wearing. It's very rare in the Bible to be told what someone is wearing. Look at verse 18. She was wearing a richly ornamented robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornamented robe she was wearing. The richly ornamented robe has puzzled Bible commentators for centuries because it just seems like such a strange interruption to the flow of the narrative. Why not mention it before? Why choose to mention it at this point? Well, there's only one other place in the whole Bible that that phrase is used, and that is the description of Joseph's famous coat of many colors, or richly ornamented robe in chapter 37. And so I think the narrator here is getting us to look back on that famous story in Genesis 37 and link the two together. I think we are meant to see Joseph and Tamar somehow as parallel characters those who have resisted sexual predators and paid the price in different ways. But there's more to the robe than this as well. The robe, we are told, is the robe that is worn by the virgin daughters of the king. In other words, this robe is something that kind of symbolizes Tamar's innocence and beauty. It's something that symbolizes the future possibilities that are open to us. And so seeing this robe now at the moment of the trauma, it helps us to visualize on the outside what is happening to her inside. See, On the outside, as she tears this robe and covers herself with ashes, she is turning beauty and innocence into ugliness and shame. And that helps us to understand, because the Bible writer very rarely tells us people's emotions, but it helps us to understand what is going on inside that as the robe is torn, her heart is torn. As the robe is in tatters, her life is left in tatters. Her hope for the future, obliterated. And so the scene ends with a picture of inconsolable devastation. She put a hand on her head and went away weeping aloud, as she went. Well, the final scene, 20 to 22, suddenly brings back the other son of David mentioned in verse 1. In fact, Absalom is going to be in the foreground of the book now for the next five chapters, while Tamar will never be heard of again. If you look at verses 20 to 22, you'll see two responses that Absalom makes. Firstly, towards his sister, in verse 20, he says, Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? 
Be quiet now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And we're told that Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. It's easy to read that as unconcern, as if Absalom is belittling what has happened to Tamar. But we need to read that statement in the light of what happens in future chapters, something that is then hinted by his second response, which is towards Amnon himself in verse 22. Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good nor bad. He hated Amnon because he disgraced his sister Tamar. And we need to watch and see where this hatred will go. Absalom takes it to heart. And then nicely sandwiched between those two responses, we get a short and ambiguous response from David. When King David heard this, he was furious. But we're left asking, furious with what? With whom? Is he furious with himself for letting it happen? Or with Amnon? Or with the situation in general? We're not told. And what is clear is that David does nothing about it. But the narrator leaves us in no doubt that this is not the end of the matter. Come back next week for a story of revenge. Absalom's hatred of his brother is an attempt to meet Amnon's hatred of Tamar. But of course, that hatred and that revenge will do nothing to answer her question, where can I get rid of my disgrace? To see the answer to this, we need to turn now, as we conclude, to another kind of love. Remember, I just kind of said at the beginning, <clears throat> why are we studying this passage? Well, the first reason is that it's a loving warning from God. You see, it is loving, isn't it, to warn people of danger. If I walk past your house and see it on fire, but you are sleeping in bed, it is loving of me, isn't it, to wake you up, to alert you to the danger, even if I have to shout, even if I have to drag you out of bed at great inconvenience because your house is on fire. And sometimes God has to send us a hard word to make us understand the danger and avoid disaster because he loves us. So this is the case with all sexual ethics in the Bible. Our society looks at it and says, well, God is just out to spoil our fun. But the sexual ethics of the Bible are a loving God warning us. And here is a hard passage. Here is God yelling a warning to us in his love to protect us from danger. And I think the lesson is all too obvious, isn't it? This is a story about the consequences of sexual sin. The profoundly ugly example of what sexual sin can do is painful to hear, but it's necessary for us to hear. And it's never been more necessary because we live in a culture that trivializes sexual sin. You can turn on the TV any night of the week and you can see this kind of violence and adultery played out on our TV screens for entertainment. And that alone should make us think. But the Bible does not treat these things lightly. In 1 Corinthians 6, for example, Paul says there is something especially destructive about sexual sin, something particularly damaging about it. 
Now, we don't like to say this because we're Democrats and we like to say that everything is equal, that all sins are the same. The Bible doesn't say that. It's in one sense all sins are the same in terms of our relationship with God, but in terms of damage, no, some sins are more damaging and dangerous than others. And sexual sin damages us physically, socially, psychologically, and spiritually, and its reach goes beyond those immediately involved. Why is this the case? Because it perverts something that God has given to be so good. See, God in his love has created our sexual natures with an immense power for good when expressed for their God-given purpose, which is the building of stable, faithful marriages, which in turn, like those blocks that Erin showed us building the kingdom, are to build a faithful, stable society. But when that good thing is used for evil, when love is turned into hate, when family relationships are perverted, the damage and misery it brings is enormous and spreads far beyond the individual's concern. The greater the gift, the greater the harm. And if you've ever wondered why our society is so broken, it's not because of lack of money. It's not because of lack of technology. It is primarily because of our defiance of God's ways regarding sex and marriage. That is at the key to it. So we have been lovingly warned by God. But I also suggested that there is an even deeper and more disturbing aspect to this passage. And so there is, I think, an even greater warning for us than the warning against sexual sin. And that is the terrible truth that the sins and flaws and failures of one generation are amplified by the next. Fathers and mothers, please take note. Your good looks and your intelligence are not the only things you are passing on to your children. You are passing on your besetting sins, your habits, your hang-ups, your faults, your flaws, your dysfunctional patterns. And may I add, in a church fam family like this, if you are older than somebody else, you are modeling to the next generation as well. So if you're not a parent, please don't tune out. You see, they are watching us. The way we treat our spouses, the way we interact with each other, the way we approach work and ministry, our attitude to church, how we handle stress and disappointment and sickness, how we plan for retirement, how we use our money, our self-discipline, all the time, their little eyes are watching, their little hearts are busy taking notes, filing away for good and bad. This is why, and I've said this uh, before, that I pray for the children in our partnership directory, as I try and do every week. I make a point of praying that they will be more zealous for their parents, uh, for Jesus, than their parents. Not because I kind of look at the picture of the parents and think, oh, goodness me, that I, I really want them to be more zealous than the, the parents. Not because of that, not because their parents are especially ungodly, but because I'm aware of sin's power to reproduce 
bitter fruit in our children's lives and how much they need the grace of God. And so I pray that each generation in our church will be more zealous than the previous one. What a great thing that is to pray and hope for. But what do the next generation need if their prayer is that, if that prayer is to be answered? Well, they need us to be godly models, don't they? They need us to guard our integrity, our discipline, our character as we face those decisions in life, such as how to spend our money, how to use our time, what we're going to do for work, career, retirement, and so on. As we make those decisions, they need us to be modeling a Christ-centered approach, approach that puts Jesus first. And above all, they need us to be growing in the fruit of the Spirit rather than the sins of the flesh so that that fruit of the Spirit can be modeled and replicated in their lives. So God has given this passage to warn us. As Paul said in 2 Timothy, to train us in righteousness. But there's one more reason this story has been told. This is the most important one of all. And that is that reason given in 2, Timothy 1, uh, 2 Peter 1 verse 19. That as we study this part of God's word, we are doing so in the context of a dark world. And we've been given this passage not to make us despair at that world, <clears throat> but to help us to see the light of Jesus in the gospel all the more. Remember what Jesus said in John 5, these are the scriptures that testify about me, even these. And so what I wanted to do now is to ask you to imagine. Imagine for a moment that you could get into a time machine. Seriously, I want you to imagine that. And travel back. This is 1000 BC. You get into your time machine, you set the dial. 1000 BC or thereabouts. You're heading to Jerusalem. You get out of the time machine, you squint at the sun, you kind of look around you, wonder where you are. You find yourself walking towards this house after this tragedy. And imagine you had the chance to speak to Amnon and Tamar. Imagine you were there to counsel them. Knowing as you do how the whole story ends. I want you to just think for a moment. How would you counsel them? What would you say to Amnon? Well, I think I'd say something like this. Amnon, what you have done to another child of God is horrible beyond words. There's no excuse to say that you copy your father's example. No, you are to blame. You think you've got away with it now and there'll be no consequences. <clears throat> After all, you're a prince, the son of David. You think because you are alone in that room with her that there is no accountability, that no one saw, that by slamming the door on Tamar's face, that's the end of the matter. But Amnon, I need to tell you that you're wrong. God has seen it all. 
In fact, he sees every act of aggression and oppression and injustice. He has seen it all. And nothing in this universe will go unaccounted for. And so let me tell you, Amnon, what is going to happen in the future. One day, a long time from now, another son of David, a descendant of yours, will be born into the world. But he's going to be different. Unlike you, and unlike all your descendants after you, he will not share his father's faults and flaws. He will never lust or abuse or manipulate anyone. He will treat all women with brotherly respect and love. Can you imagine being in the presence of someone with such white-hot purity? It's almost unbearable to think about, isn't it? But one day, you will be ushered into his presence and held to account but I'm not, I need to tell you that before that day, something else is going to happen. Something that will take everyone by surprise. This pure, sinless son of David is going to allow himself to be treated the way you treated Tamar. He's going to be humiliated and abused, just as you humiliated and abused your sister. And when he goes through that shameful abuse and humiliation on the cross... He's going to be taking upon himself all the wrath of God for every way men and women have defied God's path. For every abuse, every act of violence, every rape, every murder, all the sins of lust, malice, greed, lied, all is going to be poured on his head and he will pay the penalty. So when he weeps in the Garden of Gethsemane, and ask his father not to make him drink that cup. It's you, Amnon, he will be thinking of, among others. Which means that even you, Amnon, can repent while there is still time, if God softens your heart. But if you do not repent, and do not allow Jesus to cover your sin, you will bear the wrath of God yourself on the day of justice for all eternity. Well, what about Tamar? You see her there with that torn robe. What would you like to say to her if you knew how the story ends? Well, I think I'd like to say something like this. Tamar, what has been done to you is appalling and heartbreaking. You have been betrayed by the very people who should have loved and protected you. You have been violated and damaged in body heart, mind, and spirit, and it'll leave scars for the rest of your life. You may be tempted to blame yourself for what has happened. You may come to think that somehow you deserved this, but that's not true. What happened to you is not your fault. You are not to blame. You are not responsible. Amnon did not have the right to treat you this way. You will be tempted to respond in sinful ways. You'll be tempted to be bitter against God, to react with anger and rage and revenge. You'll be tempted to think that God has abandoned you, that he doesn't care. But he does care. He knows all about it. 
Let me show you, Tamar, just how much God cares. Let me tell you what is going to happen in the future. It's a long way off, but I wonder if you can just imagine it and see it like a little light on the horizon, because it is going to happen. One day, another son of David is going to be born into the world. He's going to be a relative. He's going to be a descendant of David. But unlike Amnon and all his brothers and sons, he will not share his father's faults and flaws. Miraculously, after a thousand years, he'll break the cycle. He'll be different. He will never lust or abuse or manipulate anyone. He'll treat all women with brotherly love and respect. In fact, Tamar, he loves you so much that he's willing to take all your hurt and pain and anger and disappointment and shame onto himself. How will he do this? Well, there will come a time when he will allow himself to be humiliated and abused, just as you were humiliated and abused. His body is going to be abused by wicked fools. He'll be subjected to all the violence and degradation of humanity imaginable. He'll be dressed in a purple robe and mocked as a king. An outrageous thing that should not be done in Israel. And he'll do this, Tamar, to answer that terrible question you asked, where can I get rid of my disgrace? The only answer will be, when that pure and perfect son of David dies on the cross on your behalf. There he will take upon himself all your guilt and sin and shame and will deal with it forever. And there he's going to put right every wrong. He'll bring justice and forgiveness. There's the answer, Tamar. It's a long way off. It's like a little pinprick of light on the horizon but there is coming a son of David who will cover your disgrace by his own death on the cross. And this rich robe that you tore as a symbol of your shame, he will replace with a garment of righteousness. The ashes that you put on your head as a symbol of degradation and despair, he will replace with a crown of beauty. I think I'd say something like that, wouldn't you? Well, you may be thinking, isn't this a bit fanciful? After all, I'm not a prophet. Is this really biblical counseling? Is this real wisdom? Well, let me tell you that all I've done is paraphrase Isaiah 61, which Jesus claims as his own. So let's bow our heads in prayer, and I'll read that and then pray. Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. 
They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Instead of their shame, my people receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. And so they will inherit a double portion in their land. And everlasting joy will be theirs. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your love you gave us this morning a warning of the deep, dangerous, and contagious effects of sin. But we thank you, Heavenly Father, that this morning you have given us hope, that you've given us love and grace in Jesus. Thank you that in him, despair can be turned to joy. Thank you that shame can be turned into glory. Thank you that when Jesus died on the cross, he took all our guilt and shame, he put everything right. May we this morning not take this for granted. May we not harden our hearts, but turn to him for forgiveness, for healing, for justice, and be amazed and thankful at your love and your grace. In his name we pray. Amen.